Well, it is an incredible joy to be here tonight. I want to lay the foundation with a vision that God gives to us in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. John the Revelator says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the vision that is set before us, a people from every language, tribe, and nation falling down before Jesus Christ and ascribing honor and glory to his name. What a privilege that we have in declaring his name among the nations. I read a quote by a man by the name of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and he said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. This is, this is the sea. This is what drives us and motivates us to engage ourselves in missional living, engaging ourselves in the proclamation of the gospel among the nations. We see this vision that is yet to transpire and it motivates us, compels us, Paul says, compelled by the love of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to paint a picture for you tonight of just some of the ministry that we've been involved in over the past 13 years. I, can, I, was, I was sitting there just a moment, again, a moment ago, Eric, and I just thought to myself, you know, how did I feel 13 years ago when I was a part of these mission conferences and I heard all of these names of these foreign people groups, you know, and uh, unreached people groups. What does that even mean? And, and uh, I, didn't know, I didn't know anything. I was a student pastor uh, for six years at a church. My wife and I, we had four children. We were comfortable. Uh, my, my sister-in-law, she was missionaries in Cambodia, and we thought, goodness gracious, we don't want to go there. You know, we know the hardships. We know the struggles. We know the adversity of what they faced. Lord, please don't send us there in Southeast Asia. Well, you get what you ask for, right? Uh, we began sensing the disparity between the incredible need for the gospel of Jesus Christ overseas and the incredible abundance of resources that we had at our disposal. I mean, here I was, I had got my undergraduate department of religion, went on to seminary with a master's degree. I had probably 10 different translations of the Bible on my shelf. I went to conferences and seminars and camps, heard great expository preaching from pulpits just like this and engaged in corporate worship that just enthralled our hearts. And, and I had all of this and I realized with exposure to the need, the great gospel need around the globe through mission conferences just like this, through experience going to short-term mission trip to Africa, and seeing the need for myself, sister-in-laws, hearing these stories and, and trying to make sense of them in my heart, wrestling with them, just saying, God, you're going to have to bring clarity to this. And then reading through scripture, Paul's desire to, to take the gospel to where Christ was not known and he was not named. And I thought, surely uh, in this globe, I mean, people have heard of Jesus. I mean, I grew up in this Western context. I mean, everybody hears of Jesus, Right. I mean, who hasn't heard of the name of Jesus? Well, it all became reality after God had called us to the mission field. And I made my first ascent up the Sean Plateau 
to a city. It had taken me probably 20 hours to get there via plane and via taxi. Curtis, you've been there before. You've seen it. You've been there. It takes a long time. I can remember getting to a town where I was trying to make the taxi ride up to the mountain. It was a five and a half hour ride uh, taxi. When I say taxi, it was a, it was a 1940s Jeep, uh, you know, that was hand crankshaft on the front. And, uh, you know, it was 49 miles. So five and a half hours for 49 miles, you can imagine the brutal conditions of the road. And I was just thinking, God, I've got to get up there. I've got to make this. I've got to get there tonight. I don't have much time. And uh, I, I began crying out to God, God, um, show me a person who could take me up there. All the other taxi drivers said, listen, we can't go up there. It's, it's getting too late in the day. And so I took a bicycle from this local shop and I was going up and down the streets. And, uh, and of course, I didn't speak a lick of the language. And out comes this man from a shop and he speaks perfect English. And he said, uh, what, are you, uh, what are you trying to do? I've seen you drive past my shop three or four times. I'm like, listen, I said, I am trying, I'm trying to get up to this, this village, this town where the Palong people live. And he said, oh, he said, well, I can take you. I said, you can? He said, yeah, no problem. He said, uh, my Jeep's right over there. I can take you. I said, well, I mean, do you know people up there? I mean, and he said, well, sure, I'm Palong. Uh, this is, and, he, and we, we called it a joke. He says, this is my native he says, I am Palong. And I, I mean, I just, it was instinct. I just wrapped my arms around him and I just gave him the biggest hug of my life. And uh, he was like, uh, I don't even know you. Uh, you know, I mean, and I thought, as we took that Jeep ride up the mountain and we got there that evening, I began to realize that Tintin was a, a, a man who was born into a hill tribe numbering 1.1 million people who were scattered across the mountains of southwestern Yunnan province, China, Shan State, Myanmar, and uh, northern Thailand. He was a people, he was from a people that uh, were vastly lost. I mean, desperately, hopelessly lost. And as we began to gauge in conversation, I realized that there are indeed people who have never heard the name of Jesus. I began sharing with him the story of Jesus, the life, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And every once in a while, Tintin would just stop and he would look at me and he'd say, now, what was the name of that guy you just said? I said, Tintin, his name was Jesus. We'd go on and we'd talk about it some more. And, and he'd say one more time, Greg, now, now what, is, what is that guy's name again? Tintin, his name is Jesus. And as I looked into his eyes, I can just remember thinking to myself, God, this is why you brought me here to proclaim and to declare the name of Jesus to a people who've never heard. And that's what we find in Romans chapter 10, the process by which God has called us out. And he does it in reverse order here. And he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, these, these verses, they're the rhetorical questions. I mean, the answer is obviously they can't. They can't hear, they can't believe, they can't call out unto the Lord unless someone brings the message of the gospel to them. You see, these are rhetorical questions, but they are not hypothetical. Listen, this is a reality that we see all across the globe, that there are people who desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
As the week progressed with Tuntun, I realized that there were some major challenges that we began to face if we were to get the gospel to this people group. Tintin lived high in the mountains, number one. They lived in isolation. It was mountainous, harsh living conditions. I stayed there for five days. And I can just remember thinking, goodness gracious, I am not used to this. Trekking up and down the mountains. Lord, thank you for allowing me to be skinny for a season of my life. Right? Because in reality, listen, if, if I was overweight, I, I would not be able to make it up that mountain. I would have limited God's call upon my life. Isolated, mountains, harsh living conditions. It was spiritually, they were cut off. I mean, they were steeped in folk Buddhism, animism. And this animistic tendency of of just this manipulation of power, of these good and evil spirits and trying to earn their favor and appease them. If they're benevolent, good spirits, then, then listen, I want to appease them because I want good crops. I want good family relationships, but that's all they see for the evil spirits. We don't want any of those things, so we have to appease them as well. And it was this constant struggle and manipulation of their power. And they failed to realize that there was a creator God that superseded all of them, that sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for them. There was political uh, strongholds, political barriers and obstacles that we faced because it was an area that was in the golden triangle. It was the second largest producer of opium in the world. And so there was forced labor. The military would come in vying for power, vying for the money. So there'd be conflict areas. There would be blacklisted, cut off to foreigners. We couldn't even get into some of those areas. Almost 75% of the country is blacklisted. So how are we to take the gospel to a people who we can't even get to? cultural challenges. I can remember first learning the language. We moved and attempted uh, to try to move to Burma, but we couldn't get in there. They shut down our, non, uh, our non-governmental organization about a month before we got into Burma. So we thought, Lord, well, where are we? We're stationed here in Chiang Mai, Thailand. We want to get into Burma so that we can declare the gospel to a people who've never heard, but we can't even get in there. And yet God was bringing them to us. He saw fit to see these people immigrate into the northern part of Thailand because of the conflict. And because of the political situation, because of the military uh, that was running the country, because of the drug conflict and fighting, they were coming across the border. And now we were seeing these people come across the border and we had access to them. We had the ability to share the gospel with them, but we had to learn their language through a secondary language. And so we learned Thai first. And I can remember just thinking, God, I don't know if I can learn this language. As a matter of fact, early on in my experience, I was sitting around with a group of guys and it was a tonal language. And so everything, all the meaning depended upon uh, the words and the tone of the language. And I was teaching them that we serve a big God, a great God. And you typically say that, and that means God is a great God. Well, if you inflect and you invert the tone just on one syllable, it changes the whole meaning. And I said, and it sounds the same. But it literally meant, we serve a big woman. And I thought, okay, this is not what I want to communicate. You know, so these men just laughing at me. And I thought, God, there are some major linguistic and cultural challenges that we have to jump. Political challenges that we have to jump. Spiritual challenges that we have to get past. Geographical challenges that we have to get past. And with these challenges in mind, our hope for the prolong 
right, is quite simply put, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope for the prolong. But there is that process by which our hope becomes their hope, right? We don't keep it to ourselves. How shall they hear? It's by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached by those of us who have hope. Reality for more than 2 billion people in the globe, people who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was my professor of evangelism at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary that really drove this home to me. This is before I left for the mission field. His name was Dr. Roy Fish, who has since gone on to be with the Lord. And Dr. Roy Fish was late for class one day. Our, we as students were just sitting there in the classroom and we were getting ready to pack up all our stuff and just leave the, leave the room. We thought, well, he's, he's not even coming to class. And just as we were packing up our things, getting ready to leave, Dr. Roy Fish walks in and he's just weeping. And so we all kind of just sit down, put our things back down, and he comes up to the podium like this, and he just stands and he looks at the class, tears streaming down his face, and he, he looks at us and said, I just got through sharing the gospel with a woman who rejected it. And you could see the passion of his heart. And he said one statement that I'll never forget, and then he walked out the door. And he said, you don't need an impression when you've been given the Great Commission. Sometimes we think we need that unction to go share the gospel with somebody, right? You've had those moments, and God certainly gives those to us. But he said, listen, you don't need that when you've been given the Great Commission. God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to use a means by which the gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations. And here in Romans chapter 10, he tells us that the means by which he does that is you. And that day when I met Tintin for the very first time, and I saw in his face the reality that there is a creator God, number one, who loved him enough to send his son Jesus. I realized that it was worth not only living for, but it was worth dying for. So the challenge tonight is, is that as you survey the land of your life, right? And you're looking at the resources and you're looking at the needs, the global needs all across the world. How are you leveraging what you have? How are you leveraging what you have to be mobilized and utilized for the glory of God among the nations beginning right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, extending to the ends of the earth? Thank you.